Um, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, this week, two articles came out um, that are of interest for us this morning. Because, again, uh, what we're dealing with here at the beginning um, of Genesis 3 is the origins of and the fall of Satan. What um, tends to be uh, misunderstood or otherwise neglected. I I just want to show you the immediate relevance of this. As I said, two articles this week, and and they're not from kind of weird off-the-beaten-path sources. One is Newsweek, and then the other one is The Atlantic. So so just interesting timing as we're looking at the idea of Satan, uh, him as a person, uh, his his, his uh, role in culture and how people perceive him or don't believe in him as an actual character, and the role of the occult, all kind of mixed in with what we're looking at for the uh, last couple of weeks here at Redeemer. Newsweek's article, that, again, fresh off kind of the presses, uh, I, I think it was dated maybe the 18th or something. The title of the article is this, Number of Witches rises dramatically across the U.S. as millennials reject Christianity. That, that was the title. Now, um, now, again, you have to be careful on defining witch and witches and Wicca and, and, and Satan and Satanism. So there's lot, lots going on there. But the, the point of interest is um, the, the movement towards something other than Christianity's version of evil and good. I'll simply read the article just briefly, a couple of points from it. It says this in the Newsweek article that I just draw to your attention to. Witchcraft and other pagan religion practices has increased in the U.S. over the past few decades, with millennials turning to astrology and tarot cards as they turn away from Christianity and other traditionally dominant Abrahamic religions. The number of witches and Americans practicing Wicca religious rituals increased dramatically since the 1990s, with several recent studies indicating there may be at least 1.5 million witches across the country. Again, I'm not citing this because we need to have trials. There's nothing to do with what I'm getting at here. The point is, um, is understanding biblically Satan, his fall in the demonic realm, and what Paul will say is spiritual warfare, is that significant for you as a Christian? Um, yes, Yes, to, to once again reorient your mind toward the realities of, of Satan uh, and uh, demons. People are fascinated by it. And the numbers aren't going in a great direction where they go with their fascination. Um, so I'll pick up one more bit. A, a, a recent study indicating that there may be at least 1.5 million witches across the country. Trinity College study conducted in 1990. And listen to this. This is so interesting. Just, um, I'll, I'll quit commenting. Just, it's interesting. A Trinity College study conducted in 1990 estimated only about 8,000 Wiccans in the U.S., but the increases has been led by a rejection of mainstream Christianity among young Americans, as well as a rise in occultism. Interesting. A rise in occultism. I, um, I would say to you, kind of as a little bit of an aside, I do think, as, you, as you're aware, I would imagine too, um, in the miniseries and in the consumerism that seems to be attached to a rise in interest in popular occult themes... Shows, movies, miniseries. 
I don't think, if, I think one would maybe be a popular one, maybe on the rise. And I don't know much about it because I haven't seen it, and I, so I, I can't really speak to it. Maybe I'm too far off in the weeds already on it, but Stranger Things. Maybe you watch that. Maybe you're binge watching it, whatever it is. I, I don't, I think, and, and, and from where I'm seated and perched, and as I look at it, I just think that like, we need to be careful on the idea of occult-themed entertainment. I think we need to be careful. Um, I, I don't think that, that, that you're worshiping the call or participating in it or, or worshiping Satan by viewing or a show that tends to be themed with that. A lot goes in the horror realm as well. A lot of Christians watching horror film and so on and so forth. I think this, you just need to be careful about uh, those genres, interacting with them as a believer. Um, Again, uh, you might get away with kind of saying, I watch them to process and like demythologize them as I watch. And I, 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 it's helpful to me to know culture as I view them. I think that's kind of tricky. I, I, just, I, would, I would say the rise in the occult and the interest in it is clearly documented. There is a huge, significant rise in interest in things of the occult. Then there is this consumer wing that swoops in and sells it and peddles it and then creates entertainment in order for you to enjoy it as well. I think you just need to be careful. I don't think it's silly and to be easily dismissed. I would just caution carefulness. So from 1990, I just move on, 1990, 8,000 Wiccans Here, Newsweek says this, quote, with 1.5 million potential practicing witches across the U.S., witchcraft, for the first time, has more followers than the 1.4 million mainline members of the Presbyterian Church. Interesting. Then it just so happens, so as they're tracking this interest, and we're looking at Genesis 3, and this idea of the serpent, and where did he come from, and is he real, and so on and so forth, the Atlantic then had a corresponding uh, article that is titled this, American Exorcism. Interesting timing, right? The subtitle to the article is this. Priests are fielding more requests than ever before for help with demonic possession. And a centuries-old practice is finding new footing in the modern world. The official exorcist for Indianapolis has received 1,700 requests in the year 2018 for active exorcisms. A new record. Um, we, were, uh, we're, we belong to uh, a, a neighborhood group of, of emails. You know, if you live here in the city, your neighborhood group has a little, like, email board. And, and when weird things happen, people message on it. Anybody see what happened on that street the other day? I heard the noises. And everybody's like, I did too. And you just can kind of read through the feed and see, like, or somebody's getting rid of something or whatever. It's a neighborhood bulletin board, essentially. And yesterday, we, uh, Adrian and I were walking, and we were discussing one post that was recent. It said, does anybody have experience... With, with um, I forget what it was, ghost, I forget what the phrase is, ghost movements or ghost, I forget. I, I can't call on you all the way to the back, Adrian. But anyways, the point was, they're asking, does anybody have skills in making a spirit leave and find its portal to the nether world? Because he seems to be trapped in my house. And right, yeah, you might giggle, but they're not giggling. They're dead serious. People weighed in on that like, you can come to me or we can connect off this message because I do have a lot of experience dealing with spirits and moving them on and helping them in their new locations. And I can help them find peace and rest and so forth. And other people are like, you know, uh, you know th- there were some funny comments, of course, mixed in there. But um, 
there was a good, a good majority of people who were sincerely interested in helping this spirit move on, and this person believing sincerely there is a soul trapped in her basement. Um, and, and, and you just pair all of this together. It's so interesting to study Genesis 3 at the same time because it's kind of like when you buy a car or something like that. You see that car everywhere, or you study a book of the Bible, right, and everyone's discussing it. It just happens to be we're in Genesis 3, and both Newsweek is speaking of the rise of the occult. 1.8 million, for the first time, more followers who would register that, uh, yeah, I belong to Wiccan religion or, or, or whatever it be, versus mainline Presbyterianism. That's quite staggering. Um, and then on top of that, the overwhelming asking of um, uh, exorcisms more in demonic behaviors. And then finally, again, I note for you just to be thoughtful and careful and enjoying occult-themed entertainment. More's going on there, I think, than you're aware. More's going on. And I'm not saying, like, I could watch it and tell you it. I don't think there's more going on than we are aware, I think, that go through those mediums of occult-based entertainment. I say all of that to say, hopefully of some sense, that we're not having a discussion in a vacuum here, but that we need to really wrestle with the biblical text and not simply assume it regarding Satan, his origins, and his fall, and the demonic host, or worse, ignore it. Because if we assume it, and then we go on to simply ignore it, and we think, well, I'm not sure about that part of my faith. I'm not sure about the part of the whole demons and devil and so forth. And we buy into culture's idea that it may be perhaps silly or simply an idea of nature and human interacting or good and the other. But we need to think more precisely. We need to be more biblically minded as God has revealed what we ought to know in order that we might be armed against the onslaught of satanic movements in the world. So, again, what we've put forward so far, and I said last week, uh, I I sketched just briefly uh, a a view of the fall that I want to put some meat on the bones, as it were. That, again, perhaps, as I said last week, um, is what I've said so far about Satan falling due to his envy of man is perhaps plausible, you say to me. I think it's perhaps allowable. It's within the scope of possible. But I don't know that it's necessarily persuadable. As I think about the fall of Satan, where did it come from? What, how did he fall? Why did he fall? I'm not so certainly it's exactly as you've expressed thus far, persuadable to me. And let me just say to you, as I take what I built yet last week and I flesh it out for us this morning, I'm not exactly sure in full disclosure I'm not exactly, and I, I, I double underline literally in my manuscript, exactly sure of where I come down either. Um, I don't want that to be like disconcerting. And I hope to make all things clear together in the end. But I'm not exactly per sin over his envy of man. I, 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 some of you perhaps have thought in terms of this. Satan fell into sin over his, his envy of man. All right. What was the role, I guess I'm asking you to think with me just for a couple of moments. What was the role of Satan being there? What was the purpose? That's where we begin to act. The, the, the other thought is, but at what point? Did he despise them as they came ready to do his dirty work, or he came to minister. And it one of chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast up to no good. Right? 
So that, that's how we would initially read that. Crafty. What are the craftier than any other beast? The question we're posing, however, is crafty even to obedience. The serpent was more crafty. Now we're trying to figure out what does that connotative, connotatively mean? What, what are we supposed to read? We're piecing together now what actually came out of his lips. Did God actually say Satan grew envious of man? is the idea that Satan was one. Even to test Adam and Eve in the way of true obedience to the commands of God, did God obedience? So if we take together his, his idea of he's there to minister, he's there to drive them on by which to proceed. Now, like in verse 1, he said to the woman, and, and we've talked about this, or, or, or the church of and woman, and how Satan appealed to the woman first. Here, what would we make of the... That is, we know that Adam was present, right? Because right in the text, when you see the text, just in a moment, she takes the fruit, right? And, and, and she eats of it. And what did she do immediately after? She gave some also to Adam, who was, in the text, says, with her. Who was with her. So, so that now you have this crafty appeal to Eve. Did God really say? She's supposed to say, no, he didn't. He actually said, we could eat of all of the trees except of the tree of the good and evil. That was the test exam. Did God really say that? That's crafty. That's tricky. That's testing. And then she appeals to Eve, and here Adam stands. How is that a challenge to him? To exercise protection and headship over her. Be gone, Satan. Drive him out. Drive away the temptation. Challenge him back. Provide for Eve. Challenging Adam's fidelity to God as head over Eve, his wife. So in sum, if I could summarize the position, and then we're going to move on to the point of the fall of Satan, and that is... What was to be at that point from Satan, if you're reading the text as Satan or the serpent who is crafty, you're reading it just, maybe you're not, but I'm saying the idea of the text would be you're reading it as pedagogical. He's here to teach and instruct. Where did I even get that? Again, if we look at the role of angels throughout Scripture, they're ministering spirits as described in the book of Hebrews. So he's here at this point, pre-fall, ministering to Adam and Eve. How? By challenging and testing their faith. Challenging Adam's role of headship. It's instructional unto obedience, but something within this scenario turns sinful and deceitful. And the thing that is located, or or the sin, or the type of sin that is locating this scene to move it on from what is instructional testing and ministerial to something deceitful and malicious is Satan's pride and envy. So let me show you where we see this in the passage. We'll begin with verse 4. Excuse me, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. I I want you to pay attention as we read through the text. Just read it with me fairly to once again take what we've described so far and plug it in. He's crafty. You're kind of piecing the connotations of crafty together with his, his purposeful twisting of the divine command for the purposes of driving Adam on to obedience. But something goes terribly wrong. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat 
of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now there's something that occurs between verse 3 and then verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And at this point, this view pushes forward that Satan in this moment proved to not any longer be a minister or a servant unto those who will inherit, but he presented himself as a murderer. Here in verse 4, with Satan's response to the woman, is indeed recorded the fall of Satan. He falls here just moments before the fall of mankind. There's two texts that, that, that push this view along. They kind of come up to saying, is this a fair reading of the text? Is this, is this a, a fair, obvious, straightforward reading of the text? Or is this making me work too hard to kind of reread the text? Um, so there's two texts that then come up to kind of help strengthen this view up underneath it. If you'll turn there just briefly, look at Revelation 12. Look at Revelation 12, all the way in the back. Revelation 12, to view uh, Satan here as indeed he, all of his anger and malice, pride and envy, is driven on about his hatred of man. Not so much his envy of our Lord, but his envy of man. Now, if you're in Revelation 12, there's a lot of moving parts here, and we don't have time to go through them all. So, so I'm just going to say um, what you have in verses um, 7 through 9 is a heavenly and symbolic kind of counterpoint to what's actually taking place on the earth through the work of the cross. I know that's loaded, so, but hopefully this will be helpful to you. Uh, let's just read verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Um, uh, uh, Now, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. So now you have it clear, absolutely, uh, without a doubt, the identity of Satan is the devil, and the devil is that ancient serpent, which is connected to what we're reading this morning, Genesis 3, and indeed the great dragon of the book of Revelation. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, this scene is the work of Christ in the cross. Beginning in verse 10 then, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation And the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Do you see? The establishment of authority of Christ did what? It struck at the accuser of our brothers. He's been thrown down. In other words, he's lost his venomous bite. But do you see what he does in verse 10? And this pairs with Genesis 3. He accuses them. Day and night before our God. 
you see the role of the dragon as captured there. And I know there's a lot of moving parts to the imagery of the book of Revelation. But what I'm drawing your attention to in light of the fall of Satan is that the role of the dragon, the ancient serpent, is principally one of accusing men and women before God. He is a serpent of accusation. He who wants to bring charges against mankind to God. You could pair that with, uh, with Job. And you remember his desire to come and to challenge and rival Job and destroy all that he has because he accuses that Job only worships you because of these instruments in his life. You've done this. Who wouldn't worship you? So, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm accusatory. I'm accusing this person of being a hypocrite, of being false. And then when you get to this, uh, this wonderful picture of the cross of Christ in Revelation 12, what, is, what are the saints rejoicing over? That the accuser of the brethren has been destroyed. He can no longer accuse. Christ has risen and ascended, conquered on the cross. What does he then principally do? He accuses men and women. His hatred and envy and pride of mankind abounds. And that is what drove him to say back to Eve, you shall not surely die. One other text, uh, John 8. Uh, John 8. If you're there in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John 8 is one more place where it's used to strengthen this idea that Satan is the accuser of men and women. That's principally what he does. He accuses, he accuses because he hates and envies mankind. And he did so in the garden. Instead of ministering, he decided to maliciously destroy. John 8, and I want to draw your attention to verse 44. Uh, verse 44, here our Lord is speaking um, to, to uh, uh, those combatants with him throughout the gospel. And in verse 44, he says, You, of chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. Now, we know what we just read in chapter 12. The devil, the dragon, the serpent, and Satan are all sharing the same identity, right? So here we're dealing still with the Genesis 3 individual. Here in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, two things here are cited about Satan's work in the garden. That, and we know it's in the garden because he says, from the beginning. This is who this individual was, from the beginning. He was a murderer from the very beginning. He wanted to destroy Adam and Eve in the beginning. He is a liar. In fact, Jesus says he is the father of lies, indicating that the story of origins between him and Adam is one of murderous deceit. The summary point being made here then, if you're to piece all of this together, where are we presently at this point in understanding the fall of Satan? What we're saying is Satan lied to Adam and Eve because in his pride 
He was envious of them and wanted to destroy God's full intentions for them. They were to pass the covenant of works, indeed to inherit eternal life. Satan wanted to destroy God's full intentions for Adam and Eve. The final piece of the puzzle is the connection that it makes between the fall of Satan and the fall of other angels. Um, In Jude 6, uh, I'll just read it for you. I cited it last week. It's the last text before the book of Revelation. But Jude 6, this is the last piece of the puzzle, puzzle, and we'll draw some conclusions here. Verse 6 of Jude, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Now think about that just for a moment. And you're pairing it with Satan and his position of authority, that he was there to be a minister to those who were to inherit eternal life. And he left that position of authority because of his envy and hatred of both Adam and Eve who were there and created in the image of God, naked and unashamed. And he envied them. And he had pride over them. And he sought therein, when he saw Eve as vulnerable, to lie. Because he's a murderer. And he's a liar. So also with him, verse 6 of Jude, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So they also, that is where we get demons from. As we said, the Bible speaks of, of men, when men and women, when we, men and women, as we talk about in Sunday school even, when we're born in sin um, and, we, and, we, and we are culpable sinners in our actions and activities, um, we don't become demons. We're, we're not walking about as demons because we sinned. But indeed, it seems to, to, to present angels when they sin, that what happens to them in their sinning or their rebellion is they become then demons. That seems to be what the Bible is drawing a conclusion to. So they also then, with Satan, being designated as ministering spirits, that is, they held a position of authority, and they were to minister to those who were inherit eternal life, They were in a position of authority, according to Jude 6. They rejected this role along with Satan in the program of God. And thereby they fell according to their own pride-filled apostasy. God had set a proper dwelling and a proper role and a creational order. And self-fixation and pride drove them to leave that proper dwelling, reject that program of God, and destroy men and women. Michael Horton uh, makes this comment that I think is somewhat helpful, but he just kind of summarizes Satan's fall and the angelic fall together, and he says this, quote, Fallen angels are not treated as evil by creation. Again, God didn't create them and then designate some as evil and others as good. No, they are represented as followers of Satan in his mutiny. At one time, 
the most glorious and powerful angelic agent. Is that who we're reading about who is crafty and purposely misquotes the command in order to push Adam and Eve onto obedience? Is that who he was then? And out of his own pride and envy, he turned into being a liar and a murderer. At one time, the most glorious and powerful angelic agent, Satan was filled with pride and plotted the attempted heavenly coup. To try and put it into um, maybe a, a scenario for your own mind, to kind of summarize this, 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 this scene of pride and envy, uh, that, that, that could so self-fixation that we all battle. We all battle that. We are the center of our universe. Often we're the center of everyone else's universe. They just haven't got that yet. And, and, and that, that sense of self-fixation, the, the, I think what we can agree upon for sure out of this text is how deadly that is. But one author, again, trying to be helpful and maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, puts the picture this way. From Satan's view, there he is, right? He has a proper dwelling and a role of authority in the life of Adam and Eve, in the program of God. And he looks at them, and he hates them. The author says this, quote, Imagine how you'd feel if you were told that platypuses would inherit the earth and rule over you, end quote. Do you at this point as an, as an angel, a, a creature of great power and dignity, a beautiful role in the ministry and program of God, are sent out to see this man and this woman created solely objects created in the image of God, not you, them. And then you, then you see, and maybe you're witness to the commission, go forward and fill the earth. Subdue it and exercise dominion over all that has been created. And you're in this helper role, this service role to those who would eventually become eschatologically, that is, in the next dimension, greater than you. Is that what we're reading in Genesis 3? John Milton, and, and this is perhaps, uh, some of you, we spoke last week about this, and, and maybe you're familiar with this uh, work, Paradise Lost. And, and it's, it's, it's not the biblical story. It's just a, a supplemental comment about the biblical story and a, a, a great work of literature from John Milton. He says this, and I, I, the final phrase of this is so insightful. And it's really insightful about you, it's really insightful about me. He says this, Satan, so call him now. His former name is heard no more in heaven. He is of the first, if not the first archangel, great in power, in favor, and preeminence, yet fraught through pride. He thought himself impaired.
you see, self-fixation. He, as we, think of ourselves. Think about ourselves. Control others in our lives for ourselves. Milton, that's what he did. He thought himself impaired. A distortion of reality. Because you think yourself right into impaired judgment. You're the most important person in the room. It skews reality. Because you're self fixated. And it brought about his own demise. You see, it's interesting in Scripture how we view pride in the events here in the garden. Whether, whether uh, uh, it's because he had pride and envy over man or whether he had pride and envy over Christ as we advance next week. The issue is pride. And when we think about what we learn about pride from Genesis 3 all the way to the end, do you remember we'll go way through from Genesis all the way to James? And you remember what James warns every one of us about in pride? God opposes the proud. That's staggering. Like he's literally in opposition, an opposition party to the proud. Because it seeks to dethrone him and impose our will. And this is what we have in the garden. A deadly work of pride. I know that's got to strike each of us between the eyes. And what we talked about a little bit earlier, even in Sunday school once again, with the idea of consumerism heading into the holidays. The idea of pride and competition. The pride of place, the pride of control of others at gatherings, the pride of the season of how it will be controlled and how I'll roll it out and what my experience exactly will be without interruption. The idea of self-fixation. Take heed this morning from the text of the deadly consequences of self-fixation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a few brief moments in your word. Pray that you would help us fight the disease of pride. That you'd help us to take heed with the disastrous sin of Adam and Eve and their fall and the work of the crafty one that brought about death and destruction and murder, lies that abound still today, that we'd be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, we be those who mark by humility and not imposing our will or to think ourselves impaired. Bless us as we labor through faith. Increase our strength by your spirit to destroy the sin that so easily entangles. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.